Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 90, Pope Constantine. A Constantine? That seems illegal. Well, and considering how popular it was as a name throughout this entire period that we've been discussing, I am shocked that it took this long to have a Pope Constantine. But here we are. Constantine was born as Constantinus in 664. And if he was the brother of Sicinius, as we've covered a little bit last week, we've covered a lot of his early life already. Born in Syria, father's name was John. And if he was Sicinius's brother, he was born over a decade after his brother. Like, Sicinius was thought to have been born in 650 and Constantine in 664. However, because we cannot absolutely 100% verify this as truth, what we will say is that the one fact for sure that they have in common is that they were both born in Syria and they both came to Rome. But because Constantine was definitely going to be around longer than his brother as Pope, we do know a fair more about him, and as such, we can also make some speculations about his early life. For example, we can surmise that Constantine probably grew up in Syria and didn't leave until he was at least a young adult, because once he got to Rome, he was known as a Greek-educated cleric that was well-versed in Eastern traditions and personally attracted to the Eastern culture, which is going to become very important. Is that normal, or is this kind of like a weeaboo situation? It could be a weeaboo situation. It absolutely could be, but generally the historians think Ah, he was so used to these cultures, he must have grown up in them. But you're right, we cannot, we cannot discount a potential Syrian Eastern weeaboo. I don't know what to call it, but you know what I mean. Oh, 100%. <laughs> it's possible. We also know that Constantine was an eloquent speaker who made compelling arguments, as he was chosen to be one of the papal legates who represented the West at the Third Council of Constantinople in 680, arguing for the condemnation of monothelitism. Now, that was a while ago now, so I will remind you that they had had several synods in the West to come up with the best arguments and find the best speakers, and then they had chosen those people to go and represent the church at the council. And his Eastern education, his ability to speak well, and his affinity for the East all made him a perfect candidate to go and do that. And so, while he was representing the Pope at the council, Constantine made a very positive impression on the imperial family, particularly with Emperor Constantine IV's son, the future Emperor Justinian II, of the no-noseness. Although, at that point, he would have had his nose. His nose hasn't been removed yet. It has not been removed yet, yes. So this also makes him the perfect candidate to go back to Constantinople in 682, bearing a letter for the emperor from the new pope, Pope Leo II, announcing his consecration, 
and to continue Agatho's negotiation with the emperor about abolishing or reducing the clerical consecration tax. Remember, that was a whole thing that kind of held up the papal consecration. Forever. Sure did. And it was a sensitive issue, right? So it was handled very successfully due to having the right legate, who is this Constantine. He's doing fairly well. He actually has a fairly prolific experience in his pre-papal life. And after that point, we can assume that Constantine continued to have a very comfortable and solid clerical career because he was held in high regard by the time his brother was elected to be pope. And then his brother was pope for a couple weeks, so that would have raised his status a little bit more. And then, when Sicinius almost immediately died, the Roman clergy sought to replace him with someone similar. They wanted to choose a pope who could handle the demands of Emperor Justinian II, who still seemed hell-bent on revenge. And so Constantine, the eastern-friendly brother of the last pope and friend of this emperor, seemed like an ideal candidate. It all makes sense. Okay, great. This might even work out better for us than the gouty man who couldn't feed himself. So he was elected in majority and consecrated on March 25th of 708. Now, unfortunately, Constantine's papacy doesn't start off on a high note because shortly after he was elected to be pope, the city of Rome is stricken by a famine for about three or four years. That's a long time. That is a very long time. And there is very little information recorded about this famine, so it was kind of hard to dig into. But the excellent resource that I found, Famine and Pestilence in the Late Roman and Early Byzantine Empire by Dionysius Stathicopolis, does tell us that the famine was probably more than likely climate-based and was also connected to another famine that occurred in Crete in around the same time period. Likely this area of the southern Mediterranean is experiencing some sort of bad weather that is responsible for this. However, this is somewhat strange because it turns out to be a period of scarcity followed by abundance, because as soon as the famine ends, Rome goes from starving to having incredible growing seasons. Like, more crops than they had ever grown before. The same passage from the source that I cited above says, After this period, the abundance of the crops was so great that the past famine was soon forgotten. The crops were so good that people forgot that they had starved for like three or four years. No, there's gotta be some guy who's like, Remember... Well, that guy was not writing it down, so. <laughs> no, he was just sitting sitting in the doorway saying, Pepperidge Farm remembers the famine. Exactly. So just so that we do a Pepperidge Farm remembering, bear in mind that this is happening during the background of the rest of his papacy. There is this famine for three or four years, and then there is an abundance. And this also sort of represents a theme that we're going to see throughout his papacy. Problems are going to present themselves, and then they're going to be solved in some unexpected and unusual ways. 
This trend of these problems popping up and then being solved in unexpected and unusual ways continues right away, because Constantine gets faced with a very uncomfortable situation in Ravenna. So you see, the new archbishop in Ravenna, Felix, whom Constantine had consecrated to the position, suddenly decided he was going to go the way of Maurus and refuse to demonstrate obedience to the Pope. And it seems like he had it in mind to appeal to the emperor to make Ravenna autocephalous again. This is still a thing. Happens every so often. It does. Ravenna just decides, hey, maybe we don't have to listen to the Pope anymore. So we get a little detail from the Liber Pontificalis. He ordered Felix as Archbishop of Ravenna, but Felix refused to provide at the church office the written bonds in the form customary of his predecessors. And thanks to the influence of the judges, he expressed his own preferences. His bond was placed by the pontiff in the Holy Confessio of St. Peter, the Apostle, but a few days after, it was found to be grimy, as if charred by fire. So normally, there would have been, like, a letter stated professing your allegiance and adherence to the Pope, and his letter comes back and it's not very loyal. It's not showing the obedience. It's dirty. It's dirty. This grime is symbolic of the corruption of Felix's position, right? He is not doing his job. However, the way this ended up being solved has nothing to do with the Pope at all, and has everything to do with Emperor Justinian II, who is now missing his nose, right? He, this, is, this is still hell-bent on revenge, Justinian II. See, it turns out that several prominent citizens in the city of Ravenna had allegedly been part of the conspiracy that had overthrown and exiled Justinian. And as we know, Justinian now wants so much revenge. So he had dispatched soldiers to Ravenna under the Exarch Theodore to gather up several of these prominent citizens, arrest them, and bring them back to Constantinople to be made an example of. And so one of the people who is arrested and dragged away is Archbishop Felix. Beautiful. And once in Constantinople, Felix was blinded. Ooh, okay. Which one? The vinegar one. And I actually have a description for you from Agnellus of the Liber Pontificalis Ecclesiae Revenatus, the, the Ravenna version of the Liber Pontificalis that we've used. And it actually gives us the whole detail of how this worked. So, the emperor ordered a great tray be brought of purest silver, and after sending it to be heated up on a great pyre, he ordered the bitterest acid to be poured on it, and the bishop, compelled to look at it for a very long time, lost the sight of both his eyes. This is the common method of blinding that's very so popular. Yeah, it, it, it would be would be painful, right? And when they talk about this bitterest acid, it's it's vinegar. If you've ever cooked anything that's really high in vinegar and it's hot and you've kind of like had your face near it, you totally know that feeling. Yeah, accidentally breathing it, not my favorite. Well, and I feel it in my eyes, it burns. And and one time we were making hot sauce in the kitchen. And it was very heavily vinegar-based, and it was heating up. And, and I told this story to Jordan about, oh, this always makes me think of people getting blinded in the Byzantine Empire. 
And he's like, what's wrong with you? So (laughs) (laughs) we're just trying to make jardinera. Why are you doing this? I'm making you pineapple habanero hot sauce. Get out of my kitchen. (laughs) That's basically the response I got. So blinded. Felix is now blinded. And from there, he's not just like sent back. The bishop was sent into exile in Portis, according to the regular Liber Pontificalis, whose account of this, by the way, is not even a little bit compassionate for this man. This is a man who didn't want to be loyal to the Pope. So when they write about him, it shows. Fair. The citizens of Ravenna were punished for their haughtiness with the vengeance they deserved. The Emperor Justinian dispatched the patrician Theodore, general of the army of Sicily, with a fleet. He captured Ravenna, arrested and confined that presumptuous archbishop on a ship, put all the rebels he could there in shackles, seized their wealth, and sent them to Constantinople. By God's judgment and the sentence of Peter, prince of the apostles, those who had disobeyed the apostolic see died in a bitter death. The archbishop received a punishment worthy of his deeds. He was blinded and sent into exile over to the region of Pontus. While in exile, it seems that Felix may have decided that his resistance to the papacy wasn't worth it after all he had been through. Or, as some of the very biased sources suggest, he saw what happened to him as retribution for his intransigence. And later, when he is brought back from exile by Justinian's successor, he immediately pledges his allegiance to the Pope and is restored to his position as the now very blind Archbishop of Ravenna. And although it isn't relevant to Felix from this point on, after the arrests were made in Ravenna, the city revolted, and a new exarch, John Rizocopus, was appointed to keep the peace and he headed out immediately for Ravenna by ship. Keep that in mind for a moment. While Felix, our archbishop, is away being blinded and exiled, the city itself is revolting, and a new exarch is coming their way. What was his name, John? Rizocopus. He's on his way. So although very brutal and not necessarily intentional for that specific reason, the removal of Bishop Felix in Ravenna solved the Pope's problem, And the Empire had done the Pope a favor. Kind of. Unfortunately, Justinian still very much had an axe to grind, since the canons from the Quinisex Council remained unratified by a Pope. Right, last time we talked about them, they just got sent back unsigned. So in 710, he issues an imperial mandate, declaring that the Pope was ordered to come to Constantinople to meet with the Emperor, and settle the canons once and for all. Big gulp. This is the same emperor, I will remind you, who tried to have Pope Sergius arrested, and now he's been denied on this issue twice, and since then he's also had the whole deposition, exile, nose-cutting-off, now revenge thing going on. I thought they were friends. Yes, so this is the thing. Constantine goes. And not only does he go, he goes right away. He has no hesitation. He probably thought that if anyone had a chance of coming to an amicable agreement with Justinian, it was going to be him, because they were friends. He had a a rapport with this man. And he knows as well that if he decides not to go, he could be looking at a blinding, or worse, and that seems to be what's happening. So 
he seems prepared to take that chance. So he leaves Rome on October 5th of 710, leaving the same people in charge in Rome that would govern the church in the case of a sede vacante. So we have the archpriest, the archdeacon, and the primacerius, who is the chief notary of the church. When he goes, he takes 13 attendants with him, who are all named in the Liber Pontificalis. And of the 13, there are 11 Eastern clerics, ensuring a favorable and sympathetic response in Constantinople, as well as a deacon who's going to be the future Pope Gregory II, and a subdeacon named Leo. However, it turns out that not all of the clerics in Rome agreed with Constantine's decision to just go to Constantinople and several high-ranking officials who otherwise definitely would have been considered for part of the retinue were left behind because they weren't Eastern, right? So there are people who don't agree that he's going, and then there are people who should have been asked to go along that have not been asked to go along. This will become important in a few minutes. Pope Constantine heads off, and he heads for Naples, where he's gonna set sail. And while he's in Naples he runs into the newly appointed exarch, John Rizocopus, who we mentioned a minute ago. Did he just arrive on his own ship? So he's coming from Constantinople into Naples to head up to Ravenna, and the Pope's going the other way. He's just on his way up to Ravenna, and they happen to cross paths. And this is where things get a little strange. Because when the exarch gets to Rome, after meeting with the Pope in Naples, because you would have to go up, right? He decides to carry out executions of four church officials by, quote-unquote, cutting their throats. Why? Just felt like it? This is the question. So, details first. The Liber Pontificalis tells us that this was the deacon-slash-vice-dominus Saulius, the Arcarius Peter, Sergius the abbot and priest, and Sergius the ordinator. So those are the four men that got killed. Who would have otherwise gone with the Pope had they not been so not Eastern. That is kind of the indication there. It also seems that maybe these men might have been involved in a plot to take over the papal treasury while Constantine was gone. Oh my god, Brie, who are these people? Right, so it's it's also possible that these are the men who opposed Constantine going in the first place, and that the Pope knew what they were up to and kind of just sort of said, hey, when you're passing through Rome, Mr. Exarch man, can you chop off some heads for me, please? Can you just take care of a little business while I'm out of the city? This is not, by the way, suggested in the Liber Pontificalis, who only judges John for the actions. The Exarch, he blames it all on the Exarch. The Exarch was just, uh, you know, throat slash happy, I guess. Yeah, and so when he dies later on, the, the Liber Pontificalis calls it God's judgment, because he's just a butcher. With no negative commentary on Constantine. But it is possible, and it is worth considering, that maybe this was intentional. It's a little fructus prohibitomy. A little bit. Yeah, nothing else ever comes of that, by the way. Like, the Pope doesn't get back to Rome and goes, How dare you kill these men? I'm so angry. None of that. <laughs> He's just like, ah, oh, they're dead. Carry on. 
And I mean, he's busy, right? He's heading to Constantinople, so he, he goes, and he makes several stops along the way, where on the emperor's orders, he's treated exceptionally well. He passes through Sicily and Gallipoli and Otranto and Chios and then Constantinople. And although it's not specified exactly where or whether it was there or on the way back, Constantine also personally consecrated 12 bishops in those areas that he visited. Now, when he arrives in Constantinople, he makes a grand entrance. From the Liber Pontificalis, the pontiff and his dignitaries entered the city on imperial saddle horses with gilded saddles and bridles, and with official saddlecloths. The apostolic pontiff was wearing the camel cap he usually travels with at Rome. By the way, this camel cap seems to have been a reference to a kamalifkian, kamalafkian, which is a sort of contemporary term for like a Byzantine diadem or crown that was reserved for special occasions. He just wears that all day? Yeah, apparently for special occasions. It's generally a Byzantine thing, but again, this Pope is either very, very Eastern or an Eastern weeaboo, so maybe he had one and was really excited to wear it. He was really into it, yeah. I'm going to the East and I can wear it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So that's what it looks like. I've sent you one. This is not a a papal one, by the way. I think this is amazing. <laughs> it's pretty special. No one has to pierce their ears. They can just, they have that whole ear piercing aesthetic without having their ears pierced. Yeah, it's built in earrings. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of ways to make this fashionable. It looks like like a flapper headdress. Definitely, definitely on that level. So it's, it's fancy, and the Pope is wearing one of those when he shows up. And he is greeted at the seventh milestone from the city, much like the Emperor had been on the last imperial visit to Rome. And he's met by Justinian's son, Tiberius, and the new patriarch of Constantinople, Kairos, and a retinue that brought him into the city in a parade to the Palace of Placidia, where he would stay, since that is the residence of the papal apocrysaries in Rome. However, Emperor Justinian is not there. He is not even in the city when the Pope arrives. Where did he go? He's in Nicaea. Although he is very pleased to hear the Pope has actually come all this way. Oh, he's happy. I'm not home. Hey, I'm not home, but I told you you better get here and here you are. His ambassadors relay that the emperor bid the pope come to meet him in Nicomedia, which is about halfway-ish between Constantinople and Nicaea. And the pope is going, okay, again, I am here on the emperor's orders, no problem. I will accommodate the emperor's request without protest, and he goes to Nicomedia. And the emperor and the pope do meet in Nicomedia, And the Liber Pontificalis would have us believe that when the Pope arrived, the Emperor threw himself before the Pope, prostrate, and kissed his feet. Which, I don't know about you, but that seems really unlikely to me. (laughs) This is Emperor Justinian, and he has had enough of these Popes. I I could see him showing the Pope all due respect and honor, but... Not kissing his whole feet. Yeah, I don't see him throwing himself on the ground, especially this man after everything that's happened to him, so. 
We do know that the emperor did take communion from the pope on the next Sunday and made a confirmation of the pope as the head of the church, so things are looking good. And the two do sit down to meet on the matter of the Quinisex council canons. And unfortunately, what happened in this meeting is extremely unclear. Both parties seem to have left happy, which means that compromises were made, but that the principle on either side wasn't yielded, right? So the things that Sergius was like absolutely not about weren't relented by the Pope, but we have no idea why they're both happy about it. No official documents are produced at this meeting, and council canons are not officially signed. Just briefly, what we actually know about what happened. We do know that the deacon who will become Pope Gregory II is the one who did the majority of the negotiations, and that the major issues of contention, like clerical marriage and celibacy and the depictions of Christ as a lamb and so on, were deliberately avoided. We're just going to ignore these. They're not asking how you feel about lambs. <laughs> mm -mm. And yet, coming out of the meeting, the unity of the Pope and the Emperor is intact. So it seems that the Pope must have agreed on the canons that he could have, like the ones that represented Orthodox faith and discipline, which, if you look at the original canons, is about 50 of the whole 102. And that that acceptance was enough for the emperor to feel justified and validated. Or, you know, he talked a lot about what a big fanboy he was about the East. Well, it could be that too, right? He, but either way, the emperor is feeling validated. Whether it's because this pope is telling him he's great, his culture's great, or he's saying, yeah, we can accept at least these canons. It's a lot more... Then, when the council was first held and Pope Sergius refused to acknowledge the whole thing point blank, or when Pope John VII had sent them back unsigned. So, there's at least acknowledgement that there's some good things to come of the list. So this compromise of Nicomedia, as it will become to known, is definitely more about accord between the Pope and the Emperor than theology. It pleased both parties, and the Pope was able to go home. And this is where I will insert a Pontifact! When Constantine left Constantinople in October of 711, it was the last time a pope will be in Constantinople until 1967. Wow. Pope Paul VI will be the next pope to visit Constantinople. And yes, by that time, it was Istanbul, not Constantinople. So that is a long time that we are not going to see a pope in Constantinople for. 1,200 years. With things firmly set on a positive path with the emperor, the only natural next step was for all of that to be entirely turned on its head. Of course. That's just the way we roll. Because a month after Constantine left to go back home to Rome, Justinian II was overthrown and executed in a revolt. And his successor, Philippicos Bardanis, had some different ideas. They usually do. Yeah. So it turns out that Philippicos was a staunch monothelite. And he had every intention of completely undoing the work of the Third Council of Constantinople. 
the thing that we thought we had settled forever. Yeah. So he immediately deposes the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople, Kairos, for a monothelite, John VI, and held a synod of Eastern bishops to abolish the canons of the Ecumenical Council, and then sent the decision of the council to the Pope in a letter with a demand that the Pope recognize it and support monothelitism immediately. Constantine is having absolutely none of this, right? The The matter had finally been settled, and it had taken decades and decades and decades of struggle, so there is no way that the Pope wants to play this game again. And so he decides on a very across-the-board tack and refuses to acknowledge Philippicos as emperor at all, and refuses to celebrate him or pay honor to him in mass. So. Just, you know, that, that guy is not emperor. We don't even acknowledge that he exists. However, that doesn't stop in Constantinople, Philippicos carrying out his plans all the same. He burns the copy of the Acts of the Third Council of Constantinople, and he returns the name of prominent monothelite patriarchs to the diptychs who had, <sighs> I know, who had originally been stricken off as heretics. He even removes a work of art depicting the council from inside the imperial palace. So someone had spent painstaking hours after the third council of Constantinople making a beautiful mosaic depicting the council. And he brings it all down. Two can play at this game. Petty. Constantine refuses the imperial portrait sent to Rome of this new emperor and moves another work of art that displays the council into a very prominent space in the portico of St. Peter's. You're going to get rid of it out of the palace? We're going to put it in St. Peter's. He also refuses to accept any coins depicting Philippicos to be accepted into the city. So no coins with that man's face on it can enter Rome. In retaliation, the emperor dispatches the exarch to Rome to pressure the pope into relenting. But all that that accomplished were a couple of eruptions of violence on the streets and no real change in the morale or motivation of the Pope. He's just like, no, no, you, you cannot intimidate me with this. And this only really pisses off Emperor Philippicos. This is leading towards disaster. So it is very fortunate for Constantine when the Emperor is overthrown and blinded in 713. Did he also get vinegar blinded? I think so. He might have gotten stabby stabby <laughs> blinded. Sorry. John's face from the other room. <laughs> vinegar blinded. Well, that's that's what we do. We we shock our husbands with tales of vinegar blinding. <laughs> and we've gotten both of them now. Yeah. He might have been stabby-stabby blinded. I don't remember. I'm sure Totalis Rankium has an answer to that. I could look it up, but either way, blinded. And he was replaced by Anastasius II. It's me, Anastasia. So many Anastasiuses. Forever. And Anastasius II was firmly orthodox and immediately sent out a new exarch, Scholasticus, to bring a letter to the Pope to reassure him of his adherence to the Third Council of Constantinople. The, the new emperor is, is all for the Third Council of Constantinople. He's all for the condemnation of monothelitism. 
He also deposes the monothelite patriarch that had been installed and installs a new orthodox bishop, Germanus. However, before that happened, the monothelite patriarch that had been installed by Philippicos, John, wrote to the Pope and declared his allegiance to the Apostolic See and essentially said, I was secretly with you all along, but the emperor made me pretend to be a monothelite. Oh. So there's that. So that is yet another problem solved in an unexpected and unrelated way. Also during Constantine's papacy, there was some contact with England. Two royals, Conrad, king of Mercia, and Offa, prince of the East Saxons, come to Rome, and they decide while in Rome to be monks in Rome. We get this from Bede. Is this a, like, because they're still royal, so are they just having, like, a, a walkabout as monks, or is this forever? This is, this is definitely a forever thing. This starts to become a trend where kings, especially out of England, are going to come to Rome to retire as monks when they're done kinging. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's a thing that just starts to show up and happening. So, from Bede. In the fourth year of the reign of Osred, Conred, who had for some time nobly governed the kingdom of the Mercians, much more nobly quitted the scepter of his kingdom. For he went to Rome, and there receiving the tonsure and becoming a monk when Constantine was pope, he continued to his last hour in prayer and fasting and alms deeds at the threshold of the apostles. With him went the son of Sigir, the king of the East Saxons, whom we mentioned before by name Afa, a youth of most pleasing age and comeliness, and greatly desired by all his nation to have and to hold the scepter of the kingdom. He, with like devotion, quitted wife and lands and kindred and country for Christ and for the gospel, that he might receive an hundredfold in this life and in the world to come life everlasting. He also, when they came to the holy places at Rome, received the tonsure, and ending his life in the monastic habit, attained to the vision of the blessed apostles in heaven, as he had long desired. They just decide, these two, that they're done kinging and princing, and they come to Rome and become monks. And, uh, by the way, the next passage in Bede right after this is about our old friend St. Wilfred of York dying. So, alas, farewell, troublesome saint that we dealt with tremendously. Accompanying these two royals was St. Edwin, the Bishop of Worcester, who was granted by the Pope permission to found a monastery, which he would do in the famous Monastery of Evesham. There are documents that still exist today to, claiming to be the genuine orders from the Pope about this monastery, but they're not considered to be genuine today. There are probably forgeries. There's also a strange story in the Vita of St. Edwin that kept popping up, which would have happened during this papal visit, and I have no other ways to describe it or more details other than how it's presented, so I'm going to just quote you the account that I read on New Advent. His rigorous policy towards his own flock created a bitter resentment. So Edwin undertook a pilgrimage to seek vindication from the Roman pontiff himself. According to a legend, he prepared for his journey by locking shackles on his feet and throwing the key into the river Avon. While he prayed before the tomb of the apostles at Rome, one of his servants brought him this very key, found in the maw of a fish that had just been caught in the Tiber. 
Edwin then released himself from these self-imposed bonds and straightway obtained from the Pope an authoritative release from the load of criticism which his enemies had striven to fasten upon him. I mean, this is very Grimm's fairy tales to me. Like, this is something we see a lot where a ring gets thrown in a river and then it gets fished out in a fish exactly where it needs to be. He has done this with a key. Miracles. Finally, Pope Constantine also received a visit from the Archbishop of Milan, whose name was Benedict, and he is a very well-known bishop across Italy with a stellar reputation of an extremely holy man, which would lead him to become a saint later on. But the reason that Benedict was coming to see the Pope was to seek clarification or to protest, at least, with the Pope about jurisdiction. This had to do with the city of Ticinium, which is modern-day Pavia. Traditionally, Pavia had been under the jurisdiction of Milan, but there had been a shift, and now the bishops were being consecrated by the Pope in Rome and were claiming that they were subject to no one but the Pope. So they feel in Pavia that they no longer owe any sort of allegiance to the Archbishop of Milan. Now, why this shift occurred was never an official shift, but it occurs roughly around the same time that the Lombards had chosen to make Pavia their capital city. And we have seen what being a capital can do to the ambitions of a city, like with Constantinople. So it's possible that as an important city in the prime city of the Kingdom of the Lombards, they had decided that they had become too big to be subject to Milan and wanted to move up the rungs to the hierarchy. So this bishop, Benedict of Milan, wants to know, should this city be subject to Milan or should it only be subject to the Pope? And of course, he wants to be in charge of it, right? He's like, the Pope should give this back to me. But it turns out that no, Constantine pointed out that even before they had been subject and consecrated by Milan, Pavia had been consecrated by the Pope, and therefore the jurisdiction was direct. And, and wasn't that convenient that Benedict wouldn't have to worry about that anymore? It'll just be my responsibility as the Pope now. But all good things and all very saintly, Benedict accepted the Pope's judgment without resistance and surrendered Milan's claim fairly easily. And that was one of the last things that Constantine would do as Pope, because he died on April 9th of 715, and the only thing I could find about that was Wendy J. Rudin saying, possibly from illness. Natural causes, or he got sick. It's not specific, and that's literally the only commentary I found about him. He was buried in the left nave of St. Peter's like his brother. And also like his brother, his tomb was destroyed in the making of New St. Peter's, and no epitaph survives. Someone needs to fire whoever did that. Just I from life entirely. I mean, I know they're dead, but like, just fire them maybe into the sun, their ashes. Right? It's just, it's just super, well, I mean, they're Catholic, they wouldn't have ashes, they'd probably have bones, but yeah, it's just... It's not good. It's it's a bad idea. Why would you destroy all these tombs of these popes? It's expensive to fire weight into space, so we have to condense it. When we're talking logic, yes, but when we're talking about Catholic people going in the ground, I mean, that, that was the thing that they did. <laughs> so, 
But anyways, this was Constantine, and now we need to rate him. Papatum infallium. So the emperor summoned the pope, which I want to point out because it says that the power is still in the upper hand of the emperor, not with the pope. But he was able to compromise with the emperor on the Quinisex council canons without actually yielding on the canons that the Western church took issue with. So this is a huge stance for standing up for orthodoxy, but doing it in a way that is beneficial to the church because now they don't have the emperor breathing down their necks. He also dealt with the situation with Ravenna, even though, well, I mean, he didn't really deal with it, but he didn't relent to it either. That was solved. He makes Pavia a city that directly answers to the Pope, so it is no longer subject to Milan. But that's pretty much it. It's not bad. I mean, yeah, it's not bad. You say that. I was leaning towards a seven until you tried to, like, downplay everything. <laughs> I know. it's. He seems like a Pope who did a relatively good job. But again, a lot of his problems were solved by not him. <laughs> Look, he's just got, what's the, I don't know, holy equivalent of, like, a green thumb or a <laughs> a lucky streak. He definitely does have a lucky streak. I don't, maybe, maybe St. Peter was watching really closely with this one, but got distracted the rest of the time. I don't know. It is definitely a lucky streak, but do we credit him for luck or, because it still happened during his papacy. I'm definitely going to give him credit for the Quinisex Council bit. That is pretty good. I'm still going to lean towards a seven. That is fair. You can give him a seven. I'm going to give him a middle of the road five because I'm impressed, but I also recognize it's not all his doing. So that'll give him a 12. Fructus prohibitum. There are some strong implications here that the Pope came into contact with that exarch in Naples, knowing he was going to Rome and getting him to execute those church officials. I mean, it doesn't say it specifically. I'll give him a one. These scandals, Fry, you were downplaying all of our scandals. You know, they gotta be juicy. Well, I want to add to that for just a second, so I want you to consider this too, because if he's willing to just be like, hey, Exarch, can you do this thing for me? What's to stop him from also doing that with the Bishop of Ravenna, right? Because he's got a good relationship with Justinian, and he goes, hey, you're gonna go and arrest a bunch of people in Ravenna to make a point? This guy is a thorn in my side. Maybe he asked him to be arrested too. I'm just saying, maybe we can credit him with a little bit more agency. Just because he likes to be like, hey, I don't like these people. Do you think you can do them a heckin' murder? It's not super scandalous. It is literally who will rid me of this troublesome priest fry. <laughs> We are having a Henry II moment here. It's just whether it's intentional or not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to... Uh... You want to give him a one? You can I want to give him, him, a, him one. a one. I'm going to give him a three, and he will get a four for Fructus Prohibitum. Just because... Actually, no, that would be too many points. I was going to give him a point for everybody who got murdered, but that would be too many. So I think a four overall is sufficient. He could have just been more slick than we thought, so. He's just lucky. <laughs> In all sorts of ways. Secularae impactum. 
So, again, a great relationship with the emperor worked out really well here. A king and a prince of England were received to become monks, which, as Bede says, was an honorable decision, because it obviously worked out better for Mercia, at least, in that way. There seems to be some good relationships happening. We could credit him for good crops after a famine, but again, just luck. It's just luck. He sat around for four years for famine. He sure did. Well, give him maybe like a, let's give him a two. I, I mean, I being able to have a good moment with Justinian no-nos when he wants to hurt everybody is pretty good. I'm going to give him a three. He'll get a five in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. All right, here you go. What's he looking at? It's a long, long nose, but not outwards, just downwards. Yeah, it looks like it got broken at some point. Actually, it kind of looks like they started drawing a nose and then added a whole nother nose. <laughs> that is, yeah, because there, there's definitely a, a color differentiation there. You could have theoretically stopped the nose where that color differentiation is and it would still be a nose. Yeah. But it's all the way down there. It's a very long nose. He has a very long face. He has also a five head. Such a five head, yeah. He's got some luscious Linus lips, for sure. And his his mustache is an entirely different color than his beard. That happens sometimes. He also looks like he coifs his mustache. Oh, definitely. This he, man looks like he should be a pirate. He does look like a pirate! Uh, yeah, I'm here for that. He definitely does look like a pirate. <laughs> so, what is it worth to look like a pirate? You know, I could give him, like, an eight. I want to roll, I'm trying to scroll back up to three weeks worth of chat. What does <laughs> his brother look like? Do they look similar? Ah, oh, I can pull it up for you. I can Do bring it. you, because I, I can get there quicker. I don't think, well, I mean, mm, I don't know. Is there similarity? They got long noses. Yeah, his is not as long. I definitely think that Constantine is the the more comely looking one. I'll, I'll, I'm siding with the pirate if I, if I had to choose. <laughs> so there's that. So you're going to give him an eight, and I am going to give him, I think I'm going to give him a, f mm, oh, that seems low. I'm going to give him like a six, I think. They do look related, but they do not look like brothers. Yeah, I mean, considering that, well, there was, there was a dramatic age difference, they did say. So with uh, Sicinius being about 15, 14 years older, yeah, that seems about right. I can see that. I'm going to give him a 6, so he'll get a 3.5 in this category. That's pretty good. His brother scored significantly lower. His brother is not a charismatic pirate. <laughs> he is not a charismatic pirate. He got a 2 and a 4, which gave him a 1.5. So his brother scored 2.5 whole points more. I have a couple more images for you. I have the bad images for you. There are some some bad images. These are clearly based off the same image as one another. Why is the one so evil looking? <laughs> um, because they tried to go really 
high detail. And they were practicing shadow. They really were. Yeah. They put shadows in weird places. Just coming at you. I mean, do you really need a shadow above your eye, below your eye, under your nose, and between your chin and your lip? That may be too many shadows on a face. <laughs> contouring gone wrong. Yeah, this this contouring is off its game. Tempest Pontificus. So, March 25th, 708, to April 9th, 715, seven years, a score of 1.75, and so much longer than his brother. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Uh, he is not a saint. Nope. No? Not even a little? Not even a little. Which is just, you know, just missed the boat, I guess. There's a boat? Uh, there's a boat for, well, there's a cannon. And I mean, he's a pirate. <laughs> um, The pirate is on the boats with the cannon, but he did not get the cannon. So that brings us to his total score, which is actually fairly impressive. He scored a 26.25. That's not bad at all. Our our closest scoring pope, well, our last pope who scored above him was Sergius. And Sergius was very impressive. And before that, oh my goodness, you'd have to go up to Gregory. So... That's pretty impressive. He has scored better than all the popes since Gregory I, with the exception of Sergius. Wow. That is impressive. I did not expect... Well, no, that's not true. Sorry, there's one. Martin. Martin beat him by 0.75. But other than that, that's pretty good. I did not expect him to do that well. So now, Fry, I have a question for you. Because I need to know if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. No. You know what? I thought about it for a hot minute. I was like, mm, maybe he's bull worthy. There's some good stuff here. And then he just got lucky, didn't he? Uh-huh. Sorry. It was a close call, but no cigar. But that is not the end of our episode because we need to have a Pope watch. We haven't recorded in a while, so there's a couple things here that we need to talk about. One we've even discussed on Patreon already, which is in a new documentary aired in Rome on October 21st, it was revealed that Pope Francis is calling for the passage of civil union laws for same-sex couples across the world. The documentary itself, called Francesco, is centered on Francis's life and his approach to pastoral care and ministry for groups on the existential peripherals, such as LGBTQ individuals, migrants, refugees, and the poor, as well as sensitive issues like Francis's work on the sexual abuse scandal of the church and the role of women in the church. Now, in the documentary, Francis said, Homosexuals have a right to be part of the family. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable because of it. What we have to create is a civil union law. That way, they are legally covered. I stood up for that. I mean, we've already had a few discussions about this, but this is still fairly big news. A call for civil unions marks a shift from Vatican policy as well as a shift from his own earlier opinions 
where he seemed to oppose legalizing same-sex marriage. But other representatives who have commented on this have argued that Francis has always privately supported civil unions as a compromise to distinguish from marriage. But this move is fairly groundbreaking and inevitably going to be controversial. But here at Pontifax, we support all acts of inclusion and compassion. And that's not all, because only a few days later, on October 25th, Pope Francis also announced that a consistory will be held on November 28th to create 13 new cardinals, nine of which are under the age of 80, making them eligible to vote in a future conclave. And in the new under-80 cardinals are two Italians who work in the Curia of Rome, the Archbishop of Kigali, Rwanda, the Archbishop of Washington, the Archbishop of Capiz in the Philippines, the Archbishop of Santiago in Argentina, the Apostolic Vicar of Brunei, and the Archbishop of Siena. Most notable on this list, and the reason we pointed out, is the Archbishop of Washington, Wilton Gregory, who will become the first black American prelate to be cardinal. So that's pretty exciting. Commentary on this, of course, the detractors say that Francis is, quote-unquote, packing the College of Cardinals, as he is now appointed 60% of the voting age cardinals in the college, but that's how time works. Yeah. So, like, I mean, he's been Pope for a number of years. There are going to be people who age out. There are a lot of cardinals who are aging out this year. You gotta have some fresh blood. And as a side note, although we're not ready to report on it yet, yesterday on November 10th, the Vatican released the McCarrick Report, which was the full-on investigation into the abuses of Theodore McCarrick, the former cardinal and Archbishop of Washington. And uh, there's a lot of stuff there, so... Maybe we will have read it all and we'll be up to date for our next episode. It's 400 pages, and it's been a lot of reading so far, and it's not particularly... Like, it's not happy reading. No. We're getting there. And on that note, we can say thank you, of course, to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for always being our our major networks of support and inspiration in this podcast. And I'd also like to just throw a shout out and say thank you to the history podcasting community. We have had some really uncomfortable revelations in the last couple of weeks, and our community has rallied around and supported listeners and podcasters and people who have stories to tell. Just want to say to all of those of you out there, thanks for being the good ones. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com dot com slash pontifax wishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifax podcast if you'd like to support us in other ways rating and reviewing the show on itunes makes a world of difference thank you and goodbye 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 <laughs>